those of us who are in this meeting will have in front of us a chart suggesting the, in a pictorial form, the outline of the epistle to the Ephesians. And those who are going to receive this on the recording, we hope will have something similar to appeal to in their own little meetings. Now we've had one or two preliminary studies in the Acts of the Apostles. We notice particularly that there is evidence in the Acts of the Apostles that Paul had a two-fold ministry. First of all, he ministered as a free man travelling from place to place. And then he called the attention of the believers at Ephesus that they should see his face no more. That he was entering into a ministry which was associated with bonds. And we find that when he reached Rome, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, he then received a revelation from God concerning the present period, a peculiar period in which we live, because we're living in a period when the people of Israel are what the Old Testament type says, no army, not my people. Now that must make an extraordinary difference to the ways of God with men. Because from the call of Abraham in Genesis 12, until the last chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, the Jew has been first. He's been the factor in the scheme. And even in that mighty epistle to the Romans, to which we appeal for the great doctrine of justification by faith, when it comes to the dispensational position of the Gentile who was a believer, he was warned that he was only grafted into the olive tree of Israel, contrary to nature. And you also have associated with the very preaching of the gospel in Romans 1, that it was to the Jew first. Well, it isn't of the Jew first today. There's nothing to stop a Jew believing, except his own evil hearts, the same as our own. But, it, but there is no priority. In this new calling, there are no Jews, and there are no Gentiles, in that sense. They are equal in their membership of the body of Christ, and they are one in a peculiar sense. Now we mustn't spend time on the preliminaries any further, but you do notice on the bottom of this chart that <coughs> the gates spare that name, Acts 28. You cannot enter into this typical building without passing through that gateway. You will also notice that the keys are held by a janitor. He happens to be an ambassador in bonds. It's no good going to Peter and say to Peter, I understand you have given to you, Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. He said, you're quite right. But what you want to remember is the keys of the kingdom of heaven do not open the church to the Gentile. The keys of the kingdom of heaven are embedded in Matthew's gospel. And if, if you can remember that Matthew's gospel definitely says, I am not sent, but to the lost chief of the house of Israel. So it's no good way to Peter to open this lock, it wouldn't fit. But we mustn't keep on at that note, we must presuppose that we are all in some measure of agreement that the Apostle Paul entered into a peculiar phase of his ministry 
when he not only called himself the apostle of the Gentiles, as he did at the beginning, but the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, as he did at the end. Well now, before we can attempt to deal with piece by piece, verse by verse, in this great epistle to the Ephesians, it's absolutely necessary that we should see it as a whole. And in order to visualise that, I've given you this sketch. I did attempt at first. I thought I would make a magnificent building. But it turns out to be a ported arms out uh, But you'll accept that and you'll close it with your imagination. So will you try to imagine a great building, a magnificent building, something like Hampton Court, only so much better, with two wings, with seven rooms on either side, and then in the centre, a central tower with three stories, and that gives you a little picture of the way in which Ephesians is written. Not that I mean that the Apostle Paul sat down and thought to himself, now, how should I arrange this epistle? I'll balance this with that. He never thought of it. It's not artificial. But just as surely as you take to pieces any of the works of God, you'll find a backbone there. You'll find a structure there. So when you take to pieces any part of the word of God, it's there. It's apparently so. And if that is so, it's worth a moment or two to find it. Because if you could be sure that you have the literary structure, then you have the scope that God had in view. In other words, he's almost put a blue lead under a certain passages and said, now, that's the thing to mark. So let's be grateful for it. But on the other hand, let's be sure we haven't got somebody else's idea. We must be sure that this is embedded in the book itself. And the only way to do that is to exercise the Berean spirit to receive with readiness the word, but to search the scriptures daily to see if what you're taught is so. But we could do no more than that. So will you first of all look at the fourth chapter of the Epistle to the Ephesians? Here is the opening verse. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Now that's where we turn from the three chapters of doctrine to the three chapters of practice. In chapter 3, where the prisoner is first mentioned, verse 1, For this cause I call the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, or as the revised text is, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. In the doctrine, he's the prisoner of Christ Jesus. In the practice, he's the prisoner of the Lord, and all keeps together perfect. So, I suggest to you that we can now we can now look upon the epistle to the Ephesians as being in two parts. There is chapters one, two, and three, not quite but nearly, occupied with giving us the teaching, the doctrine, something we wish we should never know without God revealing. And then chapter four, five, and six give you the corresponding practice that arises out of it. Now I've said corresponding practice, haven't I? Shall I give you one illustration of what we shall discover is repeated through this section? Will you look at chapter 2, verse 21? The figure of a temple is in view, in whom all the building fitly framed together. Now, if you come over into chapter 4, 
and this is in exactly the corresponding spot in the infrastructure. Verse 16. From whom the whole body fitly joined together. And those words are identical in the original. He's repeated them. So in the doctrine, it's a temple. In the practice, it's a body. And in both cases, they are fitly framed or fitly joined together. Now that goes on throughout all these sections. Somewhere or another, there is this corresponding feature. But we can't do it all in one evening. In fact, I'm not sure we're going to get around this building in one evening. You know what it's like when we visit the British Museum sometimes? Where our hearts fail us and our feet give out and we have to stop. Well, we may have to do that this evening. We shall gain nothing by rushing. We're in now the most glorious part of the New Testament. And it would be wise for us to act accordingly. Well now, in order to try to illustrate the peculiar character of each one of these sections, I've given them a little fanciful name. I've suggested that we go round this building and the one who is our guide is the Apostle Paul and he takes us from room to room and we've given titles to these sections just as it were to separate them from each other and focus our attention. Now I've called the first room the muniment room. Now a muniment room in a great building is where the documents are kept, the lease, the freehold, the grants that have been given in early days by kings, various charters and all sorts of things. You may know, you have perhaps been to some of these abbeys and castles on your holiday and you've seen these things. Well, we've got a muniment room. We've got a room in which the charter of the church is stored. I call this the charter. Now, in order to demonstrate that without going into details, will you notice from verse 3 unto verse 6, we have what we can call the will of the Father. There's not a word about sin. There's not a word about redemption. It simply tells us that we have a peculiar kind of blessing destined to be enjoyed in a peculiar place and were chosen at a peculiar time. And then it ends with the words, verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace. After that, we come to the work of the Son, in whom we have redemption. Here for the first time sin comes into the question, and after we get to verse, down to verse 12, we have the repeating praise that we should be the praise of his glory. And then we have verses 13 to 14, the witness of the Spirit. And again he emphasizes at the end, verse 14, unto the praise of his glory. But now I dare not stop any more, because we shan't get around this building at all. But don't you see, they are three priceless documents. First of all, the Father's will. Then, the manumission. And you say, what's that? Well, thank God you don't know by experience, but the, if you lived in the days of the Ephesians, you would have known that it was the document that a slave received when he was set free. And we've been set free by the blood of Christ. And then the third document is the earnest of the inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. So they are in the muniment book. 
Now we should have to go back to that room to study them. All they are priceless. They belong to us by the grace of God. But we'll move on. The Apostle moves on. He says in verse 15, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and love unto all the saints, He's now ceasing to teach them. He says, I'm now going to pray. And there's a time for prayer. It's one thing to have your head and your heart stuck with text of scripture. It's another thing for you to enter into their glorious teaching, either doctrinally, dispensationally, or practically. So he says, now we'll stop for a minute. And I've called this the chapel of the acknowledgement. Uh, We're no longer in a school, we're no longer in a beautiful room, we're in a place where we're going to look up to the Father. And he is going to look down to us. And it's a matter of prayer. Verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, our version says, in the knowledge of him. The margin tells you, for the acknowledgement of him. When we come to study the passage for its own sake, I shall take you through a series of passages where there's only one possible translation. Not merely to know something, but to acknowledge where you've already reached. Friends, this is where so many stick. This is where so many stop. This is where so many turn back. Oh, they say that's magnificent. Oh, that's wonderful. I've never heard anything like it in my life. And then they don't come anymore. Why? Mr. So-and-so had a word with them. The elders of the synagogue said, if you go there anymore and talk like that, you'll be excommunicated. Oh, is that so? Then they changed their views. They cannot acknowledge what they've seen. And said the Lord, if you can't acknowledge this, I can give you no more. It's a serious thing in a day like this to be entrusted with the truth of God. It's not merely a pleasant evening that we spend together. It ought to be. But it's a most serious thing. For we're up against darkness. We're up against lying. We're up against evil. And we belong to the Lord who has paid the price with his life's blood in order that he may bring victory and truth to the throne. So we now pass from the chapel of acknowledgement to the throne room. You don't find a throne room in ordinary houses, but in these great palatial buildings, you may have something similar. Well, here is one in this one, a throne room. And this throne is not the throne of David. I know there is a hymn where they've even got it so topsy-turvy that they speak about, up there in the glory, there is the throne of David. Well, David would be surprised to know that. Or no. According to the testimony of the Old Testament scriptures, the throne of David is yet to be occupied on the very earth where David lived. For David is not ascended into the heavens, says the scripture. But this might be, oh yes. And he not only was born according to the annunciation of the angel to Mary to sit upon the throne of his father David, but he was born and he died and he rose again and he ascended that he might sit upon the throne of the very universe itself. There is no higher place in God's universe than that which is occupied by his beloved son. 
That is what it says in chapter 4. <laughs> Verse 8. <laughs> Wherefore he says, when he ascended upon high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. I think that's clear enough. Now in this passage before us, chapter 1, he says about the mighty power that was wrought in Christ, verse 20, when he raised him from the dead and sent him with his own right hand in heavenly places, far above, do notice this, angels are never mentioned. There are no angels mentioned in Ephesians, Philippians and Colossians. Will somebody tell me I'm wrong? Say yes. Angels are mentioned in Colossians. Only to sweep them aside. This is fancy adopting the worshipping attitude of angels. That may mean that. Or fancy worshipping angels when you're completing him. Angels are never here. The people of Israel are the people who are accompanied by angels. All their history for Abraham, right through the Old Testament, in the Gospels and in the Acts of the Apostles. But we've lost nothing, friends. If I haven't got four angels round my bed tonight, it doesn't make two hoops to me. I'm already in Christ. I'm already completing Him. And my life is hit with Christ in God. So I've lost nothing. And don't import these words. Don't import them into it. Angels are heaven's messengers. Very wonderful messengers. So wonderful when a man like Daniel saw one, he collapsed. But they were only the messengers of glory. But we are raised in Christ, or at least for the moment here, Christ was raised, not merely above angels, but far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also that which is to come. And he's put all things under his feet. Oh, if we stop too long here, we shan't get down this building at all, shall we? But that's the throne room. Well, now we come from the throne room. Oh, I think we must come down into chapter 2. Because this throne has a most marvellous peculiarity about it. There's something here about this throne that you won't see in any throne room, in any castle or royal building in this country or anywhere else. Because we read that those of us who were Christless and hopeless and godless aliens, we have become so united with this Christ of God that it says in verse 6, He hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Christ is seated at the right hand of God far above all principality and power, we are seated together in those self-same heavenly places. Of course not yet, in reality. But we are, potentially. We are there by faith, and one day we shall be there in actuality. Now that's almost too good to be true. Were it not written, we could never dare say the words. So there's a throne, with not only Christ occupying it, but room for you, and me. 
teach almost blasphemy to say it, doesn't it? Seems almost too wonderful to be true. For well, that's the character of the grace of God to people like us. It's too good to be true were it not that God said so. What well, I will come to another stage. This is the armory. The place where gifts are distributed. You know, in some of these places, uh, I understand, you can go up to the door and knock and you can get a mug of ale and a chunk of bread and cheese. Or another place, they will do something else. Well, here's something better than the mug of ale, friends. It says, first of all, I would like to get the concluding word, verse 7, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace that is the pile-up of words in his kindness. All that pile-up of words to come suddenly down to the most holy word of all, kindness. You see, what we conjure up with regard to heaven and its glories is magnificence piled upon magnificence until we're staggered by it. Then God brings us all back again. He says, exceeding, which is the word hyperbole, which means exaggeration, riches, he says grace, and he says kindness. You'll be home, friend. You'll be home. It's the Father's home, however magnificent it is. And you'll be fitted for it. Instead of feeling like a person who's got to creep away in a corner and say, oh, I don't feel at home here. Well, you'll be there. In your right place. All because of the love of God in Christ. For you're accepted in the beloved. And that covers it all. Well now we start a new section, the armory. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The gift of God. This is the most extraordinary use of this word in the scriptures. Every other use of this particular word gift is a man bringing a gift to God. It's the gift of the wise men to the infant Christ. But this is the one exception. This is God coming out and making an oblation to you. It's God that brings the gift to you. You don't bring one to him. You've never done anything to get this grace, this salvation. It is the gift of God in the fullest sense of that word. We should have to examine this a bit more closely when the time comes because there are some people saying faith is the gift of God. And then when they say faith is a gift of God, the next thing they say is, if God doesn't give me faith, I can't believe. That's right enough. And if he doesn't give me faith and I can't believe, I'm not responsible, so where are we? That isn't the teaching of this at all, but we've got to prove it by a bit more detail than we can give the evening. But here's the gift of God, the armory. I think this is better than that mug of ale, friend. God's gift. In the hymn we say, unspeakable gift. No words that we have can describe it. As it's put in another passage. I have not seen, nor ear heard, neither hath it entered the heart of man, the things that God has prepared for them to love him. Or like the Queen of Sheba expressed it for us. She said, Behold, the heart was not told me. But we're all there, friends. We're only too thankful that God has stooped to use human language and given us a little glimpse. But as the hymn puts it, what will it be 
to be there. Well, we can only wait. And we can say that it's the travelling mercy and the little glimpses we get of the, of the favour of God now. What would it be when sorrow and sigh would have fled away and we shall be translated and transfigured and awake with his likeness. So we'll move again to the audience chamber. This starts at verse 11. He says, Wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. Now just for a moment I think it will be wise to look back to verse 2. In both of these passages we are told about something that we were in time past. Verse 2. When in time past ye walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. In that first mention, chapter 2, it's sinfulness and responsibility. You become a child of wrath for what you've done. Then it is followed by the word, but God. Now when you come to the second reference, verse 12, there's no responsibility. You're not responsible for being born a Gentile. You're not responsible because not God never gave any promises to your fathers. In the first case, it's sin. In the second place, it's dispensational distance. Now, the very finest Gentile was at a distance. And the most abject Jew was near because of the relationship which God had established with Abraham and which he had not established with any of the Gentile forebears. So here we've got to face the fact in verse 12, this is where we are in ourselves. Irrespective of whether we are good or bad, irrespective of whether we are better or worse than a Jew, we are aliens, we are strangers, we're without a covenant, we're without promises, we're without a Christ. For the parallel passage of this in Romans 9 says, as concerning the flesh, Christ came of Israel. Never came from anyone that I was connected with. I was an outsider. No hope. Without God. He says, I'm in the flesh. That's pretty bad, isn't it? And then I'm in the world. And that's about finishing. And then he says, but now in Christ, and that puts us all back. Makes it so much blessing, doesn't it? Look at the difference. At one minute I'm in the flesh and in the world, and the next minute I'm in Christ Jesus. Well now the audience chamber is this breaking down of the middle wall and verse 18 for through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Access. That's the audience chamber. Nobody's stopping us. 
Nothing in between. The veil of the temple was rent, that's one thing gone. And the little wall of partition, which we must examine presently, that's another thing gone. And we can go right in. In fact, he goes on to say in chapter 3, verse 12, we not only have access, we have boldness and access. Boldness and access into this presence, which by nature was as far removed from us, or further removed from us, than 10,000 Buckingham Palaces. I mean, there's a fair chance that even now I might be called up to Buckingham Palace. Bare chance I did. But absolutely no chance that I should ever have got here were it not for the condescending grace of God. Access. Well, now we come to the temple. And I've called it a living room. What do you say? That's rather bringing it down. Yes, because we've conjured up in our minds that God lives in a sort of a most magnificent cathedral. It isn't true. When we get to glory, we're going to be home friends, home in the Father's house. The very fact that we have cathedrals and temples, the very fact that God ordained a tabernacle and a temple with veils and priests, and sacrifices and incense all told us that we were very far away from God. But they're going. One after the other, these are going. There are very few left so far as our calling is concerned. Very few now between. And one day, every single element of ceremony, all the things that keep us back from God will be gone. And it will be a father with his family. I don't think I could I'd have a very sort of satisfying prospect to think of spending eternity in the pew of a great cathedral, taking part in religious services from morning, noon to night. I even think I'd do something desperate to get turned out. I don't know where you see that out. But to be in the Father's home, to be there and entrusted by him and perhaps given some work to do, we know not what. All that begins to make things a bit more rational and reasonable. But this is called a temple. But the reason why I've stressed, among other things, the word living room is the multiplicity of terms that are used in these verses that all revolve round the word home. Oikos is a house. And I can't tell you from memory all the words, but some of them are waiting for us. Verse 19, the household of God. Uh, and there's one earlier one in verse 19. The word foreigner is paroinos. Poor fellow, he's outside the house. That's the word. It's the same stem, you see, oikos. And then we have, in verse 20, the word built. That's epoi costs. A little bit extra. I'm not giving you exact spelling. I'm giving you the centre again. And then we have the building, verse 21. And we have the fitly frame together. 
And finally, verse 22, a habitation of God. A dwelling place for God in spirit. So, the temple is not only for his worship, but it is a dwelling place. Just as he said, the tabernacle, that I may dwell among them. And in the book of the Revelation, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them. Dwelling place. And there are all these words piled together that represent the eye in the original home, 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 in all sorts of aspects. Well now we come in chapter 3 to the secret chamber. Now in the ordinary ways, this is where you get a little bit of a, a shiver come over you. Makes your flesh creep. This is the dungeon section. And then you get the creeps and the chains rattling and all that sort of thing. But, not so here. This is not a mystery in the mysterious sense. It simply means that because there was an enemy at the beginning, God did not reveal all his plans at once. Here was a secret that he kept silent. Never revealed it to Moses, nor to Isaiah. Never revealed it during the days of his life in the Gospels. No, a secret. And what was the secret? That there was going to be a ministry revealed to the poor outcast Gentile and called them as members of the body of Christ and placed them in their sphere of glory far above all principality of power. That's something that's never revealed until you get to this epistle. Now I do hope you'll challenge me and you'll say I've never heard such stuff in my life. And I'm going home tonight, I'm going to read right through from Genesis to the end of the Acts and see whether I can't find a passage. I hope you do, friends, because if I'm wrong, you'll find a verse. And if I'm right, well, you'll be bowled over by the time you got to Acts 28 after that reading and you'll begin to see that there is this distinction that Paul means what he says. That to him, Always oh, less than the least of all saints is this grace given, but to me has been entrusted the making known of this truth. Let's get a word or two here. You notice the way in which chapter 3 commences? For this cause, for this cause, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, and then he stops. He never tells you what he was going to say. And he doesn't tell you what he's going to say until he picks it up again in verse 14. For this cause, oh, now he's going to tell you, I bow my knees unto the Father. What stopped him? Well, I should imagine that when the Apostle wrote these words, he conjured up in his mind, or perhaps the Spirit of God led him without conjuring up in his mind, the sort of blank look that might have gone over a person's face. <coughs> When you have to speak to people, of course I'm not being rude and saying I've got any exhibition of it here. Oh, thank God, no. But you can be in a meeting when you're conscious that you've said something and the penny hasn't dropped. What do you say? I'll go over it again, I'll tell you. And now look, I've explained it, you see. Well, that's what I'm trying to do now. That's what he did. He said, look, I've just made a claim, haven't I? I said, for this cause, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles. My, that's a tremendous claim. 
Oh, he said, you don't quite understand, do you? Right. If you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me to you, Lord, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, I've had revealed to me something. Did you notice in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 28, when he was talking to the Jews at Rome, he expounded out of them from Moses and the prophets all day. But when he got down to the end of the chapter, there wasn't a single reference to the Old Testament. And in the expounding to the Jews, in the 23rd verse, it was about Jesus. But when you get down to the last verse, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Always a different, same person, but two points of view. Paul couldn't expound the mystery from the Old Testament scriptures for one simple reason, it wasn't there. He says, I'm not expounding scripture, I'm making scripture, I'm giving you scripture. This epistle to the Ephesians is just as much a new start as the book of Genesis when it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And until we see that, we muddle and mix up all the teaching of Gospels and Acts and earlier epistles. We shall not see clearly. We shall not know what is the hope of our calling. We shall not understand the peculiar character of this parenthetical dispensation. Brackets. Up to a certain point, the people of Israel are coming to the last chapter for the hope of Israel are down with this chain. They all disagree. He quoted Isaiah 6. Now Israel have gone into their present blindness. And until that parenthesis is finished, our calling is going on. They're getting very near the end, friends. Israel are back in their land. They're calling themselves Israeli, which is an indication they claim to be a nation. And when, we don't, we don't know when, but soon, they'll look upon him whom they pierced, and they'll accept him, and this dispensation will have finished. This is a parenthesis. Known to God, but never revealed until Israel were gone. What happened to go on there? That's the secret. You, you see, I've listed out one word there, verse 8. Unto me you are less than the least of all saints is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery. Revised text. What is the dispensation of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world has been hid in God? Not merely hid in scripture, but hid in God. Now revealed. Well now that takes us, that is a survey quickly of the seven rules on the doctrinal side. Those seven rules. On the uh, practical side, we start with chapter four. We'll leave the rest of it for a moment. It's rather a breathtaking scamp around this building, isn't it? But I think we must try to do it. And I'd like to refrain from stopping. Of course we do that, you know, when we go down to the British Museum and say, look at them. We're all supposed to be here. They're still here, see? Well, there's so many wonders in this book, no wonder we hang back sometimes. So let's come over to the other week, where the practice is. This word worthy, which we need in verse 1, axios, is a word that indicates the beam of a balance. He says in as many words, look, 
Now, try to put, as it were, in your mind, a figure of balance. There's all those seven items of most glorious doctrine you can imagine. What about the practice on the other side? Oh, that's where we fail, isn't it? But nevertheless, here's the exhortation. To walk correspondingly, to walk worthy of such a court. He says, in this calling, there's a second unity. And in verse 3, the words of our translating God, endeavouring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The word keep wants to be watched in the New Testament, for it might mean keep a commandment, or keep a promise, or even keep sheep. But this means a guard, because of a possibility of attack. So the first element of our Christian walk is not to go out and preach to somebody else and leave the camp unprotected, but to see to it that this priceless treasure, this unity of the Spirit, is guarded. But if that's gone, all the rest goes. If that's maintained, the rest as an opportunity and a hope. And so we have a sevenfold unity of the Spirit. Verse 4, one body, which is balanced by, verse 6, one God and Father of all. One Spirit, which is balanced by one baptism. To some of us, that's an indication of what the baptism is. You know, in the early Acts of the Apostles, there are two baptisms. Baptism in water and baptism in spirit. Here it says in this unity there's one baptism. But which you going to have, friend? Which is it? But it looks as though being put over against one spirit. It suggests it's the baptism of the spirit without any reference to the ordinance of water baptism at all. We'll have to come to that in this term. Even as you're called in one hope, and the according, the one hope is balanced in verse 5 with one faith. What's the central member? One Lord. Isn't that fine? And you know, we sometimes speak of a, a seven branch candlestick. Well, you know the man in the zoo who looked at a rhinoceros for some time and said, There ain't no such thing. Well, strictly speaking, there ain't no such thing as a seven-branch candlestick. You try to do one. You can't. What we have here is, just as in the tabernacle, we have one central shaft which holds the lot of six branches. So we have one body and one body of fire. We have one spirit, one, one baptism, one hope, one faith, and one law. And that matters both most, the one law. He says whether we're there or not. But we fall to pieces if he's not there. The unity of the Spirit is guaranteed and held by holding Christ the head. You see, in the early chapters, and not holding the head from which all the body fitly joined together. Here's the one Lord. That's the thing we want us to hold more than anything else that's been entrusted to us. And with him goes all the rest of the teaching of God's Word. Well now we move on then from that 
guarding the treasure to the ministry. And I called it the ministry of measures. Where did I get that from? Verse 7. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Verse 13. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's the second measure. And in verse 16 we have the third measure. From whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplies, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, makes the increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. You see, the first measure is, you've been emphasizing a unity. Now it says, don't forget that a unity is made up of units. Don't get lost in the mess. To each one of us has been given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. And then, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What a, what a yardstick for us. The measure of the stature of the fullness of the Christ. And then, each member in the body doing its part, in the measure of every part. It looks as though God would not agree with some people's idea that we've got a lot of useless members about our body. They used to take bits out of it when you have a surgical operation, but they don't do it so much now they found that they had a place to, to fulfill. But there's none in this glorious company. Every part has got its measure. So that's finished. Well, it's really nice to see that we've got a wardrobe in this building. Chapter 4, verse 8. Verse 18, I'm sorry. This goes on. The understanding is darkened, but presently we come to the wardrobe. Verse 22. That you put off. Now these words are the words to clothe or to disrobe. Putting on or putting off clothing. That you put off. Concerning the former conversation, the old man. Verse 24. That you put on the new man. Only it's to be clothed with. And that's a figure that runs right through the scripture. To be clothed with the garments of salvation, the robe of righteousness, the wedding garment, and so on. Putting on. There's one little word I always like to remind myself, that in our English language, the word put on can have a very bad sense. Have you ever met people putting it on? There's no putting on in that sense in God's word. I think the, one of the most odious things is to meet a person who is putting on a specious holiness. Eyes always turned up to heaven, you know, this business, and generally going to have a quiet time of prayer when there's a job of work to be done. You know, don't you? As someone said very pointedly, they're so heavenly minded that no earthly good. You see. No putting on in that sense. But putting on in the real sense, put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, as Romans puts it. So here we have a wardrobe which we shall examine a little bit more intimately when we come to it. And then we have, this is rather a long word, an ambulatory and a common room. And this occupies the biggest space in this building. Somewhere to walk 
and somewhere to meet. Uh, that is uh, chapter 5, verse 1, to chapter 6, verse 9. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children and walk. The first walk is denominated walk in love. When we come to walk again in verse 8, it's walk as children of life. And then in verse 15, see that, that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. A threefold walk in love as children of life, circumspectly. If you could dare to venture a translation, which you mustn't do, circumspectly is to walk gingerly. Now, I don't think anybody would tolerate that in a version, so we're not going to put it in, but you can, you can sense it, can't you? The word circumspectly means you walk as you were walking a giddy height. When you were walking to this chapel, you went along the edge of a curve like that, and you never said, oh, look at this. No, you didn't bother. But if you'd have been up a few thousand feet on a little bit like that, you would hardly like to done the walk. That's the difference. Friends, we've got such a high calling that it needs a very corresponding lonely walk. I always remember the words of a Swiss guy. One of these folks who went out for a holiday and were taken up to one of the heights. He was going to walk straight to the edge and look over. And the guy yelled out to him, On your knees! On your knees! It's the only safe way. It's his friends. On your knees. We've got a marvellous calling, but we mustn't be swell-headed about it. We walk circumspectly. So there's a threefold walk. But that threefold walk is echoed by a threefold relationship. Verse 22, wives. Verse 23, husbands. Chapter 6, verse 1, children. Chapter 4, fathers. Chapter 5, servants. And chapter, chapter 9, masters. Then you've got your three groups. Walk in love. Walk as children of light. Walk circumspectly. All you say, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Yes. He said, now let's come down to earth a bit. All this wonderful walk is valueless if it doesn't enter your home and your everyday life. You know, a good many people who talk very highfalutin language about the Lord and His love and that sort of thing, but they never invite you home. They, they, they guess you'd see something if you went home that would puncture some of that. It should never be. It should never be. Here's wives and husbands. Here's children and parents. Here's servants and masters. They could all in some measure reflect the glory of God and the grace of Christ. Oh, I know it's an ideal we never reach. But nevertheless, as a man has put it, the man who aims at the moon, he got a bit higher than the man who aims at the gooseberry bush. So even though we shall never get our homes and our businesses ideal, here's the idea in front of us, that into those relationships must and should come 
this wonderful grace that is manifested to us. Well, then we have a powerhouse. Notice the emphasis in verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord, strong in the power, power of his might, might. Now, these words are already found in chapter 1. And that means to say we're back on our corresponding section, you know, the, the structure. And if, all oh, this does sound bombastic on my part, I know, that if the authorised version translators had only seen the structure of, the, of, of Ephesians, they would have never put what they put here at the end of verse 13. The end of verse 13 reads, having done all to stand. Well, not being quite sure about that, they put in the margin, having overcome all. But there's neither the word to do, nor to overcome. It's the word to work out. Work out. And it is actually translated so in Philippians 2. When we read verse 12, work out your own salvation. In verse 13 it says, it's God that works in. Well now, work in is in Ephesians 1. The power that worketh in us. Friends, whatever is the use of a power working in us, if it never works out. I don't know what the spiritual equivalent of a fuse is, but that's what's going to happen. There's a good many fuses, I think, in Christian lives, don't you think so? All think of the power that's at our disposal. And we're not using it. We're in practice now, you see. So that we put this back as it should be. And having worked out all to stand. So this mighty power which we read of in the first chapter is now in experiment, in experience, in the last. Then we have also the armory. The verse 13. The loins girt about with truth. Notice the first element of armour is truth. All the rest of it is impossible if that isn't so. And then when you count the armour, section by section, you find there are six. And those of us who know that sixism is an indication of imperfection and seven is perfect, uh, we say, now that's a pity, isn't it? But friends, it isn't. Because there would be no need for swords and helmets and breastplates and shields if there were no war and no fight and no enemy, would there? You don't think we're going to pass about in glory, do you, for the rest of eternity, all dressed up in armour? We don't need for it, let it be God's one of the things, it'll be finished. So it's number six, rightly so. Rightly so, it belongs to the day of imperfection. But what a perfect armour it is, nevertheless. The head and the heart. And there's only one weapon given to us, friends. Only one weapon. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It was effectual in our Lord's hands. He never blasted Satan by his own power in the wilderness. He said, what you and I can say, it is written. Sword of the Spirit. Now, but of course, by the time we've done with it, some of the friends give us a sword that we wouldn't dare go fight anybody with. 
angle comes loose and the point buckles up. But you remember in John Bunyan, good Jerusalem blade, he said. Well, that's what we've got, friends. A good Jerusalem blade. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Well, that brings us to the close of the of the uh, section the room of remembrance where the apostle not only prays for them but he says in verse 19 and for me and then says but that you may also may know my affairs and how I do I'm sending a faithful minister to make these things known a room of remembrance very homely too now we must spare the last few moments to come back to the centre. In the centre of this building, with the wings on either side, is this tower that leads up its three floors. Verse 14. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and depth and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ that passes knowledge ever going up, friends, that ye might be filled with, no, not necessarily, but that you might build right up to all the fullness of God. So we're right out on top now, friends. We can get no higher. Build up to all the fullness of God. That's the central prayer in gathering it all up in itself. So there's nothing but to end our study this evening with a benediction. Here it's waiting for us. Now under him that is able to do exceeding abundantly about all that we ask of thee according to the power that worketh in us unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages world without end. Amen. Well that's just, just as far as we can do in the limited time to get round this building. Now I hope your desires of coming back again and spending more time in investigating room after room and having these priceless exhibits brought before our attention.